You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. It was told, Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day, as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom! Oh, Absalom, my son, my son! Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out, and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by Yahweh, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok, and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on, in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and his twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king, and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan, and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, 
to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed Yahweh's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes, from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I, then, to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Now Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogilim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, eighty years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live? that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem. I am this day eighty years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city, near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimam. Let him go over with my lord the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimam shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you, and all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. All the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away, and brought the king and his household over the Jordan, and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? 
And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and this is my show, episode 769 of this podcast on Thursday, November 30th, 2023, reading 2 Samuel chapter 19, as we just did. We've got Joab rebuking David, David returning to Jerusalem, David pardoning his enemies, and all of that we will talk about as a lead-in, and hopefully a primer to give us better judgment, to help us to be wise, not wise in our own eyes, but to be wise and discerning as we talk about the plight of Americans economically. And not just the young, also the old, all of us are suffering economically. And a lot of that has to do with the decisions being made from a benefit standpoint, not a cost-benefit standpoint. Decisions being made, maybe that benefit somebody and they cost others, but that cost-benefit analysis we want to talk about in a way that is wise, in a way that is informed by God's word and God's economic outlook for us. But then that is to say, as we're talking about 2 Samuel chapter 19, there's more to it than just, ah, okay, Here's the cleanup after David and Absalom's conflict, the conflict that embroiled all of Israel in this cat and mouse fight or flight, who's going to be ruling in the future. There's not just that. There's also the money. There's the property. There's the where are you going to live and who is going to recognize you and what do you enjoy in life? Where do you live and what belongs to you besides just your life, right? Just thinking very, very narrowly, if you have at least your own life, that's good. But then there's more to it than that. And these details are attended to in the text, not just in this chapter that we read, but all throughout scripture. There is a lot of talk of property. There's a lot of talk of someone's home, or their fields, or their vineyards, or their livestock, or their servants, or their gold and silver. There's a lot of talk of property that belongs to so-and-so, and will they retain it? Will they protect it? Will they lose it? Will they increase it? Will someone else take their property? Will they take somebody else's property? All of that is peppered in throughout the Old Testament and it's touched on in the New Testament as well. We will confine ourselves to 2 Samuel chapter 19 for the purposes of this discussion because there's quite a lot in the text and we want to draw it out. But first, before we talk about property, 
let's talk about Joab and his confrontation of David. He says, to David, some very stern things after he is told the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. Joab is told, I believe, because the hope is the expectation that Joab will know what should we do about this. What's the right response? Should we be celebrating that we just resolved this, that we just won a battle? Should we be celebrating or should we be mourning? Everybody feels like we should be mourning because the king is mourning, but then it feels off. It feels like this is not quite right. This is a very bittersweet incident. But then what does Joab say to David? He says, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants. Why is that? Because they want to celebrate. They're excited. This feels like a win. Hey, we made it. We weren't all killed for following you, David, for serving you, for being faithful to you. We weren't all killed for being connected to you. I mean, that's happy. That's good, right? The usurper has fallen. Those who sided with him, who fought for him, have fallen. They've been scattered. That's happy. We want to celebrate, but now we feel ashamed of ourselves. If we're celebrating in your mourning, O king. So Joab says to David, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. What is that to say? That is to say that Absalom was fully capable. The men who followed Absalom were fully capable of eliminating ruthlessly everybody connected to David. And if not killing them, forcing them to swear fealty to Absalom. The king would have been killed. David would have been killed. That was the counsel of Ahithophel. And Hushai said, no, don't take Ahithophel's counsel to go after David and make a surgical strike. He's a mighty man, expert in war. The men who he surrounds himself with are expert in war. They're not dopes. They're not going to let you just kill David and leave it at that. Nope. You're going to have to muster the whole army of Israel to go after them. And it's going to be a battle. It's going to be a fight. And sure enough, it was. But then if it had gone the other direction, if Absalom's forces had defeated David and his forces, his thousands at least, what would have happened to David's other children? What would have happened to David's wives and concubines? The 10 who were left back in Jerusalem, we know what happened to them. We won't go back over that again and again and again. But that was while David was alive. If David had been killed and now Absalom was confirmed in his ruling over Israel, I would say Absalom would have eliminated his siblings, anybody who had a rival claim to the throne. And that was the expectation of Joab, and that was the expectation of others. What would have happened to David's wives and concubines? Well, either they would have been put into Absalom's harem, perhaps, or they would have been killed. A guy like Absalom, he would have said, you're either going to be mine now moving forward, just like he possessed and asserted dominance over the 10 who were left in Jerusalem for all to see. He would have asserted dominance over the surviving wives and concubines. And that is to say, either they would have joined his harem or he would have put them to death. He would have found ways for them to just disappear. And so Joab says, your servants have saved your life today and the lives of your sons and daughters, and the lives of your wives and concubines. But you have covered 
the faces of your servants in shame because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. You've got your signals crossed. Now, is Joab right? Does he have a point? Joab says, you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, today you would be pleased because of how you're carrying on, because of how you're acting, how you're relating. How does David respond to this kind of rebuke? Joab says, if you don't get up and get out there and make an appearance and thank your servants and get yourself together, if you don't pull it together right now, I swear to you, not a man will stay with you tonight. You will be completely and utterly alone. As in, we will stop following you. We will stop serving you. What does David do? He gets up, he goes out, he takes a seat in the gate. And all the people come before him because they want to be near their king that they just risked their lives for and they just fought and some of them died. But many of them had to kill to protect David and David's reign, his rule over Israel. They all come before him, but it's now not apparent how you should relate emotionally. How should you feel about this? What should you display? What is an appropriate demonstration? It's probably just a very quiet, very somber very confused assembly. David returns to Jerusalem. He sends word. After there starts to be more and more of a murmur of, hey, we should probably bring David back, right? We, Israel says, we anointed Absalom over us, and now he's dead. Now, therefore, why do you, <laughs> why do you not bring the king back? Why do you say nothing about bringing the king back just yet? Now we just don't have a king at all. Is David still king? Did he ever stop being king? You know, on the other side of the equation, it's a very confusing time. David's followers are very confused. Israel is very confused. But then David sends messages to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, for the elders of Judah. Interesting, the elders of Judah specifically. Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? As in, David wants the men of Judah. He wants the elders of Judah to bring him back because that's reminiscent of his pathway to the kingship in the first place. He was king over Judah for seven and a half years before becoming king over all Israel. And so Judah will bring him back across. And oh, by the way, at the very end of the chapter, there is this interesting exchange between the men of Israel and the men of Judah. Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan? Well, it could have something to do with the fact that you jumped at the chance to anoint Absalom over you as king. It could have something to do with the fact that you marched behind Absalom in pursuit of David and his men. It could have something to do with that. I mean, maybe not to bring up that, but I mean, it's relevant. Verse 42, all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? Um, the answer is yes. It was a while ago. It's been a minute. But yeah, he did give them gifts when he was still in exile before coming back, before becoming king over Judah, after defeating the Amalekites. He did send them gifts from the plunder, from the spoils. The men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. 
Why then did you despise us? You don't really want to know. Guys, are you really asking that question? I don't think you want the honest answer. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And that also could have something to do with the fact that it was the men of Israel first who started talking about, let's bring back the king. And the men of Judah were conspicuously quiet for whatever reason. So this is politics, right? It's politics and everybody's trying to ingratiate themselves again. They're trying to recalibrate whatever they had thought the market was going to do, so to speak. They're trying to reposition themselves because the market has definitely shifted. Who the winners and losers are going to be, even though there are pardons granted to David's enemies, the equation is very much changed. So now they're jockeying to get back into the good graces and to be seen with David, just like shortly before, they were all trying to vie for the favor of Absalom when they thought, oh, okay, well, maybe God is taking away the kingdom from David like he took the kingdom away from Saul. And maybe Absalom will be king over us because of the business with Uriah. That's speculative, but I think it's an educated guess. Going back up to verse 16, though, let's talk about David pardoning his enemies. Shimei, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand men from Benjamin and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, that's a lot of sons, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king, as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord, the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, which is to say he was not exactly loyal. He was not exactly as faithful as he should have been. And now he regrets it. And what was I just saying about the recalibration? Everybody's trying to reposition themselves when they were picking winners and losers. They were expecting Absalom would be the winner and he wasn't. He didn't end up being the winner. Yes, David was under discipline. That doesn't mean that God had taken away the kingdom. It was a serious sin. And oh, by the way, remember, this all boils down to David having taken Uriah's wife and then murdering indirectly that faithful servant, Uriah. That sin led to all this turmoil, all this upset, all of this dissension, all of this chaos civil war, tens of thousands of men dead. And what does David respond with? When he has some of these who should have been faithful, they should have been loyal, they should have stood by him, who instead were captivated by Absalom, what does David say? Well, he doesn't have a chance to answer just yet. Because before he can answer, Abishai, who is a bit of a hothead, right? He's always like, yeah, let me kill him. Abishai says, shall not Shimei, be put to death for this because he cursed Yahweh's anointed. And David, not for the first time, says, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Which is kind of like the flavor of Jesus rebuking Peter, get behind me, Satan, which is to say, know your place. You have forgotten who is master and who is servant here between you and I. You're speaking out of turn, Abishai. Abishai is a high-level servant, when the army gets divided up, Abishai takes a share, a large share, like single digits, small numbers share of the command. Abishai, son of Joab, 
sons of Zeruiah, both alike, very important, very useful to David, also very aggravating for all the same reasons probably that they are able to serve at a very high level. He does not like when they speak out of turn. He does not like when they say, here's what we should do. If David doesn't want to hear it, he's like, shut up. No, we are not doing that. That's stupid. What do I have to do with you? Which is kind of like a, who are you to me? You're forgetting yourself. All he says to Shimei, after having put Abishai in his place, is, you shall not die. I promise you will not die for your treachery. Then you get Mephibosheth. Now, remember, Mephibosheth had gone to Jerusalem, according to Ziba, because Mephibosheth was thinking that he was going to get the throne back. He was going to be put back on the throne as king. Maybe Absalom had promised him that or insinuated that he could someday resume being king. Maybe Ziba was making it up. Maybe it was true that Mephibosheth was not exactly loyal to David for all the kindness shown to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth's side of the story is very different. He says, I couldn't go with you because I'm lame. I said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. So Mephibosheth says, whatever you heard from Ziba, basically, was a lie. I was going to come with you. But then he says, but my lord, the king, is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. Does David know who's telling the truth, whether it's Ziba, whether it's Mephibosheth? Was this Ziba telling David truly, yeah, he's betrayed you. Here are these gifts. I will come to your aid. I will come to your rescue. Did Ziba lie to David because Ziba wanted exactly the result that he got, which was David saying, everything that belonged to your master is now yours? Possibly. Or Mephibosheth is revising history. He's got an alibi and he knows David's not going to know one way or the other. So what does David do? David says, you will divide the land. Each of you will take half. And then interestingly, Mephibosheth says, oh, let him take it all since my lord, the king has come safely home. This is reminiscent, or I suppose perhaps foreshadowing of when Solomon is brought to two prostitutes who are fighting over whose baby this is. Both women gave birth about the same time. Both women had baby boys. One woman's baby died, but then there was a dispute about whose baby the surviving baby was. And Solomon says, we'll cut the baby in two. Bring a sword. We'll cut the baby in two. You each get half. And the woman who said, no, 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 no. The other woman can have this baby. Solomon said, ah, you're clearly the mother. Because the other woman is like, yeah, that's fair. Sure, I'll take half a dead baby rather than the other woman get the whole. And the true mother was the one who was going to say, no, 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 no. I would rather this baby be raised by someone else, by the other woman. I relinquish my claim. I just want the baby to be okay. That's the woman who's got the maternal instincts to take care of a baby and have a baby not die in the first place. This is reminding me of that, which will come later. Oh, let him take it all since my Lord, the King has come safely home. Now it could be disingenuous, but it also could be very genuine. It could be very genuine. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, Barzillai, the Gileadite, it just moves on, right? We're not told who was telling the truth, who was lying, who was slandering who. Somebody's slandering somebody, but we're not told. It just moves on. 
So David, I think, did the best he could with that situation. Hey, I don't know who's telling me the truth, so you both get half. How about that? Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. So here is somebody of means who did not sell David out. In terms of picking winners and losers, he stayed faithful. He stayed loyal to David, even as David was on the run, and it wasn't looking like he was probably going to make it. Barzillai escorts David across the Jordan because Barzillai is the kind of man that David trusts, the kind who didn't vacillate, who didn't abandon him, who didn't, at the first opportunity, go over to the younger, more handsome, more ostentatious, more cunning, shrewd, ruthless Absalom. And so what does David want? David wants Barzillai, aged or not, to come to Jerusalem. Come and be my guest in Jerusalem. Come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. You'll want for nothing. This is also good for David because Barzillai is apparently somebody he can trust. If I can trust you in my darkest hour when everybody was against me, well, then I can trust you when I'm back on the throne in Jerusalem. Barzillai says, I'm old. (laughs) To paraphrase, I'm old. Nah, that doesn't have much appeal to me. I want to die in my own city. I want to be buried with my fathers. Please take Chimham. Here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go with you. Do for him whatever seems good to you. Now, a quick word about this. With regards to the ruling class in America right now, today, in the United States of America, we have a lot of people who are 80 plus who are in positions of high office and they don't seem interested in retiring and passing the torch to the next generation. Barzillai is the kind of elder statesman we should want. One who, at a certain point, is just going to say, you know what, sounds great to me, just being in the land of my fathers, in the land where my fathers were buried. As I come down the home stretch, and I too am going to pass on soon, I want to be close to my father and my grandfather and my great-grandfather where they're buried so that I can think about my legacy and I can put my affairs in order for however many more days, months, years I have left. But here, here's this young man who I see a lot of potential in and I see benefiting you greatly and I see being benefited greatly. Take him. That's the sort of elder statesman we should want. Look for older men of means who are like this, who are going to say, no, my time has passed. We need a new generation. The ones who will not let go who will not relinquish power, they're going to hold on until the very bitter end, even if they're not capable, without quite a lot of chicanery, deception, dishonesty, threats, intimidation against old critics, those who say, this is not working out so good, this is not going so well for us. Yeah, those kinds, I'm afraid we've got too many of those at the very highest levels, including in the White House. But all of this is to say, though, right, you have lands, You have food, you have property in view here and relevant. And in God's word, if you attend to having the position of Barzillai, being a man of wealth, a man of means, and being able to offer support and aid to the rightful king, so to speak, to the one who 
actually should be on the throne. He's the rightful king. In a time of crisis for your nation, for your people, God wants us to know about that. God wants us to see that that comes to a good end and that's honored. And also, likewise, if you're the kind who is an opportunist and you just go whichever way the wind seems to be blowing now, you want to pick a winner. And by winner, you mean who everybody else seems to be saying is a winner. Well, then you're going to fall for deceptions and manipulations. And you may really regret it. You may have a lot of egg on your face when the winds change again. And it turns out that was just a passing phase. That was just a temporary disruption. And we're going to go back to the regularly scheduled programming. We're going to go back to how it was here shortly in just a minute after this temporary madness and chaos and disruption. You may have a lot of egg on your face and you had better hope when the winds change again that the person who is back on the throne is merciful and they don't count your sin against you. You'd better hope that it's David who's making the decision and not Abishai. Because if it's Abishai, well, you know what he thinks. He thinks you should die. Abishai says as much. And if he were in the king's place, or if the king had just left it up to him, Shimei would have been dead. Yeah, you don't want to be in that spot. But if you're loyal, if you're faithful, if you are on the side of the true and the good and the beautiful, then you don't have to be in that spot. Interesting, right? Going back though, let's go back to the situation with Joab. We kind of analyzed this. We're commenting on this backwards to front. When David returns to Jerusalem, although he does what Joab tells him to do, when Joab confronts him and tells him off, when David returns to Jerusalem, he does not put Joab back in the position of prominence commanding the armies of Israel. He puts actually Amasa in that role moving forward. Amasa had been leading forces for Absalom. And we can only speculate why maybe this was an attempt at healing the rift that had been caused by this civil war between Absalom's followers and David's followers. We'll put Amasa in the position of commanding the army. We'll replace Joab with Amasa. But I think actually this is bitterness. It's bitterness against Joab. One, because David did find out that Joab had killed Absalom. Two, Joab talking to David the way that he did. It was like lemon juice in the eyes or salt in the wound. David doesn't want to deal with Joab anymore. Joab or Abishai for that matter. But then is this more of the same? Is this graciousness and mercy on the part of David, or is this bitterness? Because there's still something of a reluctance to admit that this is his fault. It was his fault what happened with Absalom and the whole kingdom being torn in two. It doesn't say. We're just presented with, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and then these guys talked, and then David said this, and then so-and-so did that. At the end of the chapter, we still have conflict. Because even though Absalom's dead, David's back in Jerusalem, Judah and Israel are going to argue over the honor now. You know, before they were (laughs) perhaps having conflict about how do we wrap this up by killing David and then we can have Absalom. Now they're having conflict over who gets the lion's share of proximity and honor in relation to the king. And this is how people are. And this is why you 
should not put too much stock in the inherent goodness of people. Your anthropology should be informed by passages like this, just like your theology should be informed by all of this having been a pronounced judgment against David after the sin with Uriah, taking Uriah's wife and having Uriah murdered. Your theology should be informed by how God sends Nathan to David to tell him of his sin and of the coming judgment. Your anthropology should be informed by how various types of people, various types of men, not just David, but also all of these other people, all of the nameless people, 10,000s, dead on a battlefield. Your anthropology should be informed by how things built up to that, how events unfolded to lead up to that, and how events after that transpired. This jockeying for position, this maneuvering, this bickering, this feuding, this contentiousness. This is people. It's the exception rather than the rule that men, when they have wealth and they have power, will do what's right consistently. And they'll say what's true consistently. But then that's why you should be very aware of how serpents operate. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Don't become a serpent, even as you're trying to anticipate what a serpent is going to do. But don't be ignorant just so you can feel innocent or you can appear innocent to all parties. There's so much of this that has to do with perceiving more than just what at face value is being said and being presented. There's so much of this judging rightly, executing justice, knowing when to be merciful, when to run for it, when to come back, how to return, in what manner, accompanied by whom, who to forgive and how, who to pardon and how. All of this requires judging with right judgment and seeing more the objective standard of goodness and not necessarily just trusting that everybody's going to tell you the truth. If you just trust that everybody's going to tell you the truth all the time, you will be taken advantage of. And the more wealth and power you have, the more tempted, unscrupulous, dishonest men will be to take the wealth and power away from you through lies and deceit. But all that said, the passage having been read and considered, let's turn our attention to our context today and where we find ourselves economically in relation to our anthropology. How is our anthropology informed by and informing our current events? get a nice base of understanding. Let's start with All Sides Headline Roundup for November 28th. What's behind Americans' negative economic outlook? Why do many Americans have a negative perception of the state of the economy despite strong output and declining inflation? Political pessimism is one answer from a Wall Street Journal article, Center Bias, supposedly, Analysis determined Americans' poor outlook is more political than economic, writing 
Quote, Democrats and Republicans think the economy is great when their party controls the White House and terrible when the other party does. End quote. The writer determines the economy might not be what people are upset about, stating, quote, pessimism about the economy may reflect dissatisfaction with the country as a whole, end quote. Well, there's one theory. There's one theory. <laughs> How about a lean right bias analysis from the Washington Examiner, citing inflation, interest rates, and angst. Analysis from the Washington Examiner identified four key reasons why economic confidence is low. Inflation, interest rates, the pandemic, and Republican angst. While inflation has slowed, prices remain high and are still rising. Rising interest rates have put large purchases, such as homes and cars, out of reach for many Americans. The pandemic fundamentally shook the economic confidence of consumers and investors. Republicans are disproportionately unsatisfied with the economy, quote, dragging down overall measures of sentiment, end quote. I think that's nearer the mark, quite honestly. Lastly, they offer economic disconnect as an explanation, as a theory. A New York Times, lean left bias, yeah, no kidding. A New York Times article explored the divide between messaging from the Biden administration and voters' perspective on the economy. The Biden team has cited declining inflation and low unemployment as indicators of effective policies, but one analyst is quoted arguing, quote, that's not the economy to most people. The economy to most people is gas prices and food and whether or not they can afford to throw a birthday party for their kid, end quote. Absolutely. Whether you can afford to buy Christmas gifts without overdrawing your account, whether you can afford to buy Christmas presents and also pay for Thanksgiving dinner, and also pay the rent. That's the economy. Whether you see your wages and your opportunities going up faster than you see the cost of the basic necessities of life going up, and whether that ratio of your opportunities, the opportunities of those around you going up relative to the cost of everything, the price of even just basic necessities like food, clothing, housing, Utilities is static. That's the question. Is the proportion of my income relative the goods and services I need to avail myself of for my family's sake, that I need to procure for my family's sake, is that proportion static? Is that going in the right direction? As in the amount of free cash. The amount of cash flow that I have in my monthly budget is improving, and I'm putting away money, I'm saving, I'm able to save for a rainy day, for instance, I'm able to pay all of my bills, I'm not in collections, I'm not being harassed, not being hit up by creditors. That's the economy. If the Biden White House and their friends in the media put out report after report after report showing metrics that look like they're improving, it's like... Somebody who has been in a head-on collision with a drunk driver being told, well, look, your car, you know, we fixed the mirror. And meanwhile, the whole front end of the engine is still smashed in. And you're thinking of what your car looked like before the head-on collision with the drunk driver. And all the while, in this case, the drunk driver is your government. <laughs> because it wasn't the COVID pandemic. It wasn't the Wu flu, it wasn't Kung flu that caused our economy to crash. It was the response to COVID.
It was how the Democrats seized on COVID as an opportunity to grab for more power, to consolidate their power, to try and regain their momentum to pursue their progressive agenda, to fulfill the vision of the welfare state, and to implement as much as they possibly can of the Green New Deal. That's the head-on collision with the drunk driver. Icy roads, maybe that's COVID to a certain extent, although I still think that it was a bioweapon. And a lot of people think that it was a bioweapon cooked up in a lab, not just gain-of-function research in the abstract. Oh yeah, we were just trying to see what's possible, and then oops, you know, we don't want to say that it was leaked from a lab, but if it was leaked from a lab on purpose, well, then it was a bioweapon and this was malicious and it was timed in such a way as to remove somebody who was getting tough with China and who China had lost face to in the person of Donald Trump. And how have Democrats used it to do exactly that? They show the numbers under Biden and they say, hey, look at how much better it's been since Biden took office. And all they really mean is once we moved Trump out of the White House and moved Biden into the White House, then we started to relax on our efforts to sabotage our national economy and the global economy. We relaxed and we haven't completely recovered just yet, but then we don't want to totally recover yet. You know, if they're still trying to milk the crisis for all that it's worth, You don't want to completely turn off the crisis. You want to be able to turn it right back on again if it looks like Trump is going to make a comeback or some mini Trump, as Mika Brzezinski on Morning Joe recently said. If it's a mini Trump that you want to oust and prevent from getting into office, well, you've got to keep that crisis on a simmer, on a low heat setting. You don't necessarily want to burn it, but we definitely want to keep the heat on. Most Americans, they know only this, that the amount of free cash, the amount of cash flow in their monthly budget, relative the goods and services in the economy, that proportion, that relationship, that ratio has not remained the same. It's gotten worse. And it's gotten worse in inverse proportion to the political power of the Democrats increasing or being intractable. I think most Americans know the first half and then the second half, well, that's the media's job to try and spin it and to run interference. It's not just, hey, whoever's side is in power, who's ever got their guy in the White House, they're going to be optimistic about the economy. It's also the same kinds of factors that we see in play in 2 Samuel chapter 19. You see that lands, fields, Houses, servants, livestock, wealth generally is all of a sudden very much up in the air if who lined up with who during a major conflict suddenly turns out to be in the other direction. When it was Absalom who was ascendant, anybody who helped David was taking their life in their hands. And if Absalom could get at them and could take their wealth and harm them so as to cut off the supply of resources, the supply of funds and food and shelter and even comfort for his father, David, well, then that's what Absalom was going to do. And so after the dust settles and Absalom is dead, David is going to reward those who did what was good. It was good for those who helped and aided and were loyal to David to stand by him. 
And those who betrayed David and went over to Absalom's side, well, all of a sudden, they have to beg forgiveness. And even begging forgiveness, they may only get half of their property back. And that's true of just the high-profile people. That's not even considering all of the lower-level people who now have a directional signal how to relate to their neighbor, depending on whether their neighbor was backing Absalom or their neighbor was backing David. The winds shift in one direction or the other, and the economy is going to be doing better for some people, and it's going to be doing worse for other people. The economy is affected by who is setting policy. To say that it's just a perception, to imply that it's just a perception, is ridiculous. It's absurd, Wall Street Journal. Come on. Could that be a part of it? Maybe. But the bigger part, the much, much bigger part is the practical effect of the policies. I mean, both sides argue, we're going to do this with the tax rate, and we're going to do this with our regulations, and we're going to do this with our oversight, and we're going to do this to incentivize some good thing that's supposedly going to benefit the economy, and we're going to do this to disincentivize this thing that's hurting the economy. And so it should be that we all agree that government policy, tax rates, regulations, one way or the other, either promote economic growth or they protect economic stability or they do something with regards to the economy. They have some kind of an effect. We should all agree about that. And yet, here we've got the Wall Street Journal, center bias supposedly, saying, like the most committed centrists so often do, well, you know, it's all sides, really. I mean, and I'm looking at allsides.com, of course, because I want to know what all sides are saying about this. But that isn't to say that all sides are correct or that the truth is somewhere in the middle. The truth is... There is political pessimism, but it's not for no reason. It's because the Democrats think that they have an unlimited budget. And inflation is a thing. And inflation is due to printing money to make up for what you can't collect in taxes. It's a hidden tax. It's a very dishonest tax. And what do you do with the money that you print? Who do you give it to? Do you give it to everybody equally? No. Who do you give it to? Well, the winners. Who are the winners? Well, the winners are the people that you think are doing good and they need to be rewarded for doing what is good, but they weren't being rewarded by the economy for doing what you think is good. And all the while, who are the losers? Who are the ones being punished? The ones that you say are doing what is evil or they haven't been doing what is good. And so you tax those who supposedly, allegedly should have been sharing the wealth more. They should have been spreading it around more. You tax them because they made money and they profited off of their work off of their inventions, their intellectual property, their business model, whatever it was, you tax them, you take the money away from them because they did what was evil, making money, being profitable, generally speaking. And then more specifically, if you find people who've been engaged in business that you find to be evil as a Democrat, making guns, for instance, producing oil and gas, for instance, being a conservative who is involved in the public square, for instance, maybe being a conservative, who is leaving a platform for those who want to engage in free speech, at least relatively speaking, more so open, more free in the form of X, formerly Twitter. If they're doing what is evil, according to you, and you go after them and you penalize them and you punish them, what are you doing? You're picking winners and losers. You're giving a directional signal that the economy should not be doing so well for certain people who are doing what is evil, and it should be doing very well for those who are doing what you consider to be good. 
even if what you consider to be good is just them voting for you and them continuing to support you and your policies and your initiatives. It's as simple as that. So the economy is not doing better for everybody. And it's not just a matter of perception. It is the reality that the economy is doing better for some and it's doing less well for others, but it's doing much worse for far more people because actually at a certain point, you just take from the producers and you give to the mooches and the malcontents. And if the moochers and the malcontents aren't producing something, and now the producers who you took from have less wherewithal to continue producing, what you get is exactly what we are getting. What we are getting is what was predicted by economists like Thomas Sowell and Milton Friedman and what Adam Smith would have told us if we were listening. It's not just that we're disconnected from the economy. It's we're connected to an economy that is running on a very different paradigm because the perception is that the Democrats, the radical left, has a mandate. They get the slimmest of little majorities over their political enemies and they say, ah, see, this is a broad mandate to re-engineer all of society. No, it's not. No, it isn't. Even supposing you won the elections fair and square, which you didn't, if only for the media running interference for you, lying their pants off to create echo chambers of disinformation and false perceptions on your behalf, even if that weren't the case, which it definitely is, and you did win fair and square, which I don't think is the case, the fact of the matter is everybody is plugged into an economy here where you are imposing your morality in a very unfamiliar way for the majority of us. And even for those who think it's a great thing, oh yeah, absolutely, we should penalize those who have a bigger carbon footprint and they're not putting solar panels on everything. Uh, They're not looking for synthetic meat to replace beef anytime soon. We should penalize those folks for being on the wrong side of history, for destroying the planet. Let's penalize those people Even if you think that's a great idea and you wanted to see that, it's still unfamiliar to you. The only place that that is a familiar prescription for our economy and for the people who are plugged into the economy, including you, is in your own imagination and in science fiction. So then when reality hits, you're like, oh, this isn't quite going the way that I expected. It's probably the Republicans' fault because they've been holding us up from going the full way on everything that we want to do. So we should get those Republicans, the evil Republicans. And now all we have to do is know, are the Republicans trying to stop us from doing more of the same? If so, they're doing what is evil. And if so, then we should punish them economically. And if so, what? We bankrupt their companies. We boycott their businesses. We pass over them for promotions. We create a chilling effect by promoting all of the narratives that they're not going to be able to sign on to, to where they're always on the defensive. They always have to watch what they say. And if they say something contrary to DEI, if they say something honest and they, you know, don't just flatter our new paradigm with every breath, with every glance, with every look, with every gesture, with every decision, if they won't do that, well then maybe we'll even fire them. We won't just pass them over for promotions, for being quiet in the land at best, trying to hold on Maybe we'll actually fire them and they won't be able to get another job doing what they do, especially if it makes headlines, especially if it becomes a big stir. That's, in my view, what's behind Americans' negative economic outlook because you can't be fully honest about it unless you're prepared to risk 
an even worse economic situation because the sword that the governing authority is bearing here is directed towards those who tell the truth. So it's no wonder that everybody's going to lie their pants off right along with the media if they think that's how to avoid the sword being brought to bear against them. Here, the sword not being necessarily a literal sword, of course, metaphorically, figuratively speaking, the sword here is economic sanctions of a kind on a personal basis. All of a sudden, you're getting a call from the IRS. All of a sudden, you're being audited for the last five years, 10 years, tax returns. Weird. All of a sudden, your permitting process is greatly slowed down. All of a sudden, you're getting investigations for weird things. This was never an issue before. Why all of a sudden? Oh, could it be that I was critical of the Democrats? And all of a sudden, they said, eh, we'll see about that. Yeah, they're thugs. They're thugs masquerading as your government. And if the majority of us say, well, we'll just keep quiet, pass over all of that, leave it to the Wall Street Journal to chalk it up to Republicans just being bitter. It's just perception, right? No, you guys deal in just perceptions. And especially if you're on the winning side, as you see it right now, you're working for Absalom. The perception that we have does not match your reality because you're some of the winners here. You've been benefiting because you were banking on, you were committed to, you were betting on the Democrats winning and carrying their agenda forward indefinitely, perhaps forever. And so you've positioned yourself to do relatively well in this market. And that's not even counting being rewarded handsomely by those who do have the power in all these various spheres predicated on the progressive mindset, the progressive left secular humanist agenda. I think that's the biggest reason for the disconnect here is you've got mostly the party of the unmarried and the childless living in cities, having big salaries if they did everything that the Democrats wanted them to do in order to be a spokesperson, in order to be credible, in order to serve in somebody's administration or in their cabinet or on their news team. They did all of those things that they were supposed to do. And now they make a good salary. They make quite a bit of money and they only have to spend it on themselves. Perhaps here and there they buy gifts or they treat their friends. Hey, let's go for dinner. I'll pay. Hey, let's go up to the mountains this weekend. Yeah, on me. It'll be great. It'll be fun. They do that kind of a thing. And so their lived reality is totally other than the lived reality of the supposed losers. And they will even think of people like me as losers. They'll say, a husband, father, having lots of kids, his wife staying home, homeschooling their kids, his working in the oil and gas industry to try and provide for this big family, renting four years plus, four years and counting into having moved to Colorado. We owned a home in Montana. We can't buy a home. We can't afford to buy a home. Not when our rent is $2,100 a month. Not when our utilities are as high as they are. Not when our groceries are as high as they are. Not when the cost of everything is as high as it is. They look at people like me and they say, oh yeah, those losers, they're suffering because they made stupid decisions. But then according to whom? According to whose paradigm of virtue and vice and wisdom and folly? According to the progressive left paradigm. 
I should suffer because I've done stupid things. Well, how did they know that those were stupid things? Well, because that's what I learned on TV. That's what I learned in the movies. That's what I learned in my, you know, favorite magazines and novels and music. And that's what I learned in college. And that's, I mean, of course, right? That's just what it is. You can just look around and you can see that that's how it is. And so when they look at the economic conditions, they say, if you're doing really, really well, we'll say, that's a problem because you're the oppressor. But then if you're doing poorly, when they have their hands on the controls for the economy, when they're inflating the money supply, when they're raising interest rates, when they're increasing regulatory burdens, when they're slowing down their permit approval process, requiring permits for more and more things, prohibiting more and more things by turn. If they see conservatives doing poorly in that circumstance, in their view, the way to spin that, the way to rationalize that, confirmation bias comes in and they say, ah, see, they vote conservative, they vote Republican for the same reasons that they're doing poorly, which is to say that they're stupid. See, it's just proof that they're stupid. They make bad decisions because they're stupid people. We, meanwhile, we are very forward thinking. We're very advanced, very evolved. How do we know? Well, because look how well we're doing. Yeah, but how much of how well you're doing is because the incentive structure has been put in place by people who wanted this progressive outcome. They wanted you to come to exactly that conclusion because that's actually the core purpose of government as instituted by God, according to Paul in Romans 13. He says that the governing authority does not bear the sword for nothing. There is no authority among men except what is instituted by God. Would you be rewarded? Would you be at peace? Would you do well? You want to be approved of by the governing authority, then do what is good. He does not bear the sword for nothing. I'm paraphrasing here, but go look it up. Read it for yourself. He does not bear the sword for nothing. He is there to do good to those who do good, to reward those who do good. And his bearing the sword gives him the capacity to do so. He also protect those who do what is good. If you're operating within your rights, you're free to do a thing. And somebody, a private citizen, a private party, criminal organization, a foreign entity is trying to destroy you, trying to stop you from doing the good thing that you are well within your rights to do, the governing authority is supposed to step in with that sword and protect you and reward you for doing what is good by getting villains to leave you alone, to stop trying to take your life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, your private property, etc. But if you're doing what is evil, well, then Paul says that's the role of the governing authority to punish those who do what is evil. Why? So that evil can be restrained in the world. And this is where, at root, the left-right divide in our day is actually a fundamental disagreement about the basis of value judgments from a moral standpoint. This is competing visions, a conflict of visions, as Thomas Sowell says, about the vision of the good life, about who are we, how did we get here, why are we here, What are we supposed to be about? What is our purpose? What is our telos? What's the purpose of the world around us? How should we treat one another based on our purpose, their purpose? Who is God? The left and the right has very different sets of answers because if you trace it back, they made generations ago very different decisions. Those on the left, those on the right, the thought leaders made very different decisions, very different commitments to how to interpret the biblical text, ultimately. That's really what it traces back to. How do we interpret 
the Bible? How do we interpret this claim about Jesus Christ? One side said, yeah, we don't need any of that. It's a new age. It's a new world. We need science. We need progress. Man needs to not be so constrained by external limitations like morality, like religion, like culture, like law telling him you can't do this, 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 this. but they can't escape it forever. As a matter of fact, to the end of removing constraints and limitations and prohibitions, what do they have to do? They have to prohibit people from prohibiting things. And so they don't actually deliver on what they promise and they can't because it's a self-defeating irrational, ironically, rationalism byproduct. Let's just take one aspect of this economic situation that we're in right now. In relation to the general populace and also in relation to our government, I'm going to play for you cut one here. I know we're over an hour in at this point, but I'm going to play for you cut one brought to us by way of not the bees, Harris Rigby embedding a tweet from The Blaze, in which is found a video from Fox Business. So this is how many steps removed? I don't know. That's quite that's quite a few links in the chain. But thanks to everybody for making this possible as we listen to Cut One. Here it is. Take a listen. Stuart, we have new numbers, a new report from the U.S. House Committee on Homeland Security Majority. They say the price tag per year is 451 billion dollars. That is both for the housing and care of the asylum seekers as well as those known Godaways. 451 billion with a B dollars compared with, get this, what NPR in 2020 was saying was too much money to spend on a border wall that Trump wanted to build that he promised he was going to build because that was going to cost $11 billion. The most extreme estimates, according to Harris Rigby's post, the most extreme estimates for Trump's border wall topped out at $15 billion. We're now spending $451 billion. $451 billion. That's a lot of billions compared to $11 billion. $11 billion is a lot of money too. But this is where the cost benefits works in one direction, depending on if you're a Democrat, and it works in the opposite direction if you're a Republican or if you want a conservative outcome. If you're a Democrat, they only want to tell you about the benefits. And then anybody who points to the price tag is like, oh, this guy, this is no time to talk about money. We have to do it for the children. There's no time for us to quibble about money. We'll pay for it later. No, you won't. No, you won't. You'll bankrupt the country. Maybe you're okay with that, but I think we live here and that's a terrible idea, actually, and you should not be in charge if you don't know that and if you don't realize that and you don't want to hear that. But if you're a Republican, if you're a conservative Republican, more to the point, if you're even just a conservative, if you make a proposal and you say, hey, we've got some real costs, some real dangers here, we should invest some because the cost that we're paying is so much higher than what it would cost to mitigate this, then all the Democrats, all of the progressive media will say, ah, but look at the price tag, right? They won't talk about the benefits. They won't admit any of the benefits when it's not what they want. When their ideal, their vision of the good life, their vision of man and what's best for man is hindered by you mitigating this cause and effect 
relationship from their previous schemes. Their mistakes from yesterday, they're still trying to cover up and say, oh, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, $451 billion, half a trillion dollars per year. Can you imagine going from living paycheck to paycheck, worried about buying Christmas gifts and also paying for Thanksgiving on the same check and also paying rent on the same check and also paying wrestling dues on the same check, like yours truly, like myself? (laughs) Can you imagine going from that to even having the tiniest little fraction of $451 billion? What a game changer that would be how that would just blow wide open the outlook for self-sufficiency, for independence. I'm not saying that I'm holding my breath and expecting that. I'm not. But it is to say that this is also the economy. And this is also very closely related to who is actually in office. And it's not just Democrats, but it is definitely Democrats. It is at least Democrats, and it's also a lot of mushy Republicans who claim to be bipartisan. By that, they mean About the same thing as what somebody who says they're transgendered means when they say, I'm a lady, but they're actually a dude. Yeah, you say you're a Republican and you say you're bipartisan. You're like a gender-fluid politician. Sometimes you express yourself like a Republican, kind of, sort of, but you might just as easily blend and express yourself as a Democrat and vote with the Democrats on pretty much anything and everything that they want. And the more they want it, the more eager you are to cut a deal in exchange for some little perk. This also is the economy. Another thing that is the economy is highlighted by Mayreed Elordi over at the Daily Wire in an article November 29th titled, It's Now Often Cheaper to Rent Than Buy Property. May Reed writes, thanks to rising house prices and mortgage rates, renting a two-bedroom residence is cheaper than buying that property for about 89% of Americans, according to an analysis by The Economist. Back in 2020, that was true for only 16% of Americans. That's a huge shift. That's a huge shift from 16% to 89% for about a decade until 2020. The typical house mortgage payment was about 12% cheaper than renting a similar property with a national average deposit of 13%. Since then, however, house prices have spiked 40% and mortgages have risen from 3.1% to 7.3% for the average 30-year fixed rate mortgage. This has caused nominal mortgage payments to more than double. Housing costs are currently at a record high, up 3.9% year over year. In September, the median house price was $278,200 back in August 2019, according to the National Association of Realtors. By August of this year, the median price has skyrocketed to 407100 Median house price was 278000 Now, 407 From 2019, August of 2019, get this, the month before my wife and I moved to Colorado, the median house price was 278200 Maybe you weren't paying attention back then because you already owned a home. And maybe you bought it right out of college a year or two into your first job. And you don't know that because why, you know, if you're not shopping for a house, if you've already got a house, you're just trying to stay in it. What's it to you? It's not that your home became so special because you took such good care of it. It's because the supply of homes relative, the number of people who want to buy the homes relative, the money supply has been affected 
by the policies of Barack Obama and Joe Biden and the radical left and a whole lot of establishment Republicans who have profited handsomely from selling out America. Just don't zone areas that would be developed for residential. As the population increases, you will have fewer and fewer residences because <laughs> there's no land or the, the land that there is is so expensive because supply and demand. Or to give another example, the materials that go into building a house. If you insist, if you demand through the power of the government, through regulation, if you demand that the building materials have to be made out of environmentally conscious substitutes that are much more expensive than traditional materials, and if at the same time you regulate and prohibit and artificially restrict the production of the less expensive, more traditional building materials, say, for instance, shutting down logging, you say, oh, we're not going to have people just going out into the forests and cutting down trees and turning them into lumber like they used to. That's just not environmentally conscious. Then the materials that have to be purchased to build a house on a more expensive piece of land that has been residentially zoned, those materials being more expensive will mean that the house is more expensive. If you increase the requirements on the builders, how much insurance they have to carry, how qualified they have to be, you will constrain, you will artificially restrict the number of qualified builders there are in the market to build your house. And so then they'll charge more. They'll charge more for their labor and they'll charge more for the materials. And of course, they'll charge more for the land as well. And if on top of all of that, you're being taxed at a higher rate and your groceries are more expensive, of course, the cost of the limited supply of existing homes, the cost will go up and up and up and up and up. And we haven't seen the end of how high it can go. We will see it go higher and higher and higher, especially as we're bringing more and more people in from other countries. And by that, I mean, whether you literally go to their country, pick them up and bring them here, or you just advertise to the whole world that we're not going to stop you if you get here. Once you get in, we'll just let you loose. We'll bus you anywhere you want in the country. Once you come to the border, cross the border, if we apprehend you, we'll just bus you wherever you want to go. And we'll tell you, yeah, come back, meet with an immigration judge at such and such a time. And if you don't show, well, then how are we supposed to find you? Especially the more and more of you there are. Artificially restricting the supply of homes while also artificially, through passive and active means, inflating the number of people, you will get exactly what we are getting. You will get the median house price in four short years going from 278000 to 407000 Not because the hardworking husbands and fathers like myself decided to slack. You know, we just lost our mojo. We just got older and tireder. We just made dumb decisions. No, no, no. It's because people who think they are so smart, who profit handsomely off of manipulating the economy like this and not telling the truth and lying and propping up this progressive vision of the good life. It's because those people have stubbornly, foolishly, recklessly, and destructively been strangling our economic reality the economic factors that would make homes more plentiful, more abundant, more attractive, more spacious, more comfortable, more affordable. 
This also is the economy. And this also is a reflection of who is in political power that they would reward those they perceive as doing what is good. What seems good to them, they will reward. And what seems evil to them, what they say is evil, of course they'll punish it through various means. And here's the thing too, with regards to rent not going up by as much as home prices. In the cases where somebody bought a home decades ago, when the cost was much, much, much lower, the cost of living generally was much lower, so they had more capital to spare. They were able to save up, but also median home price was lower. If they bought their starter home and then the value of it just went up and up and up and up and up and up, they were able to use the collateral, which is to say the difference between what it's estimated to be worth and what they actually owe on it, to borrow more money to buy an additional house so that they could rent that house out. And now a lot of those kinds of people, they do have multiple homes in part because of these factors. And so they don't especially want to raise rents beyond which, beyond the point where somebody can afford to rent. And so that explains that. So you have more and more people renting what properties there are, but you have particularly those who were in a position decades ago to buy, to buy low and to hold and to maybe even pay off or to take out a line of credit or borrow against the collateral. You have those people not wanting to raise the rent past which they'll be able to keep somebody in there. Because now, now, now renting out those extra homes, that's a revenue stream for them. That's how they're getting by. That's how they're subsisting or enjoying a high standard of living, a high quality of life. Again, winners and losers, very much tied to who's in political power, who holds political office, who they want to reward, who they want to punish, who they won't tweak, not if their life depended on it, and who they will see themselves as having no reason to not go after because, well, those people aren't going to vote for us anyways, so we might as well, right? Let's plunder them. Let's raid their coffers. Let's pillage their village. (laughs) Uh, This too is the economy. To give just one example of what this looks like, though, and this is kind of a silly example, but do, 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 do check out the link in the description for my podcast episode and watch the video. I'll play the audio for you here in just a second, but do watch the video Cardinal Pritchard posted. Josh Lacac tweeting this out on November 28th, Cardinal Pritchard picking it up and posting it to Not the Bee. November 29th, for just under $140,000, you could own one of these 661-square-foot tiny homes. Here it is, cut two of the realtor, the real estate agent, it seems to me, doing the walkthrough and pitching these tiny homes. Take a listen. You asked for it, and here it is, the most affordable home in San Antonio, Texas. Let's check it out. All right, guys, so what we got here is a tiny home. You have a little breakfast nook here, and you have a full kitchen. You have a sink, dishwasher, stove, and you have a space for a refrigerator. All right, guys, so we're in the bedroom. It's small, but it's affordable. All right, guys, so this is going to be a two-story home. It's going to be over 600 square feet, two full baths, and it's going to have this loft area here.
Would you live here for $1,000 a month? If so, call me, text me, or message me. Remember, I'm Billy the Realtor, and I sell brand new homes. Binomics is working. <laughs> uh, shoot. Tiny homes. Let's talk about tiny homes for just a second. $140,000 for a 661 square foot. Why not a 666 square foot house? Hmm. We're almost there. $140,000. You too can own a tiny home. $1,000 a month. Wow, that's great. 661 square feet. Now, let me ask you a question. Okay, so if this is one of the consequences, and it is, <clears throat> one of the consequences of pushing the Green New Deal type regulatory environment when it comes to zoning residential, when it comes to regulating the kinds of materials people can build with, regulating the builders themselves, when it comes to raising the interest rates that people have to accept if they want to get a mortgage, take out a mortgage to buy a home, if this is a consequence of the Green New Deal, but the ultimate end of the Green New Deal is to lower all of our carbon footprints, riddle me this, which is more likely to have a higher carbon footprint? A 2,500 to 3,000 square foot home in which, oh, I don't know, 10 people could live? Say, for instance, the home that my wife and I are renting for $2,000, $2,100 a month. It was 2000 when we first moved down here, but now it's 2100 If my wife and I, plus our nine children, live in this 2,500-square-foot home in Greeley, Colorado, which has not been renovated in any meaningful way for decades, you know, if we can fit into a 2,600, 2,500-square-foot house, but really, 3,000 square feet would be much more comfortable. That would be much less of us being on top of each other and having to figure out, okay, how do we play Tetris here with our furniture? How do we fit everything for everybody, much less fitting everybody? Is that a higher or a lower carbon footprint than if you have, oh, I don't know, four or five of these tiny homes, each with one or two occupants? Because think of it this way. For the same square footage, either way, you've got four or five kitchens with all their appliances, furnaces, and air conditioning units with all of their ductwork and electronics. You've got front door, back door. You've got bathrooms, you know, four or five bathrooms. I would hope at least one bathroom per house, unless you're just going to have a community bathroom in the middle of this tiny house suburb. Four or five garages, perhaps, if you can have a garage. Probably you can't. So maybe no, no garages. Our house has a garage. Which has a higher carbon footprint, would you think? Which takes up more land? One, 3,000 square foot. Let's just boost it because we'd much prefer a 3,000 square foot home. One 3,000 square foot home or four or five of these tiny homes. Of course, the answer is the higher carbon footprint is going to be four or five tiny homes each with one or two occupants, maybe a fur baby or two. Probably not raising kids in a home like that. But oh, by the way, what's the higher overall cost? $140,000 for one of these. You get four or five of these, and we're talking about anywhere between $560,000 and $700,000. But then maybe that's 
pretty close to what you're going to pay for a 3,000 square foot house. You know, if these are new constructions and they look to be to get a new construction, 3,000 square foot house, you're probably going to be looking at around that, around half a million dollars. <laughs> and it depends on where, but in Colorado right now, yeah, you're probably looking at that. So this is to say that the Green New Deal is actually more about power and it's more about people feeling good about themselves because they're supposedly saving the planet or at least they've got an excuse to be unmarried, childless, and living the progressive dream, the progressive vision of the good life. This, too, is the economy. Back to May Reed Elordi over at The Daily Wire, though. In a piece published November 29th, California will spend $300 million to clear homeless encampments. The effort will clear encampments near state roads, only near state roads. That's not to clear all of them. But here we have Governor Gavin Newsom launching the expensive new effort on Monday with Caltrans, the state's Department of Transportation. Quote, the public has had it, Newsom said when announcing the new homeless effort. Quote, they're fed up. I'm fed up. We're all fed up. Yeah, right. Okay, sure. But how did we get there? California? How have so many cities, how have so many states gotten to this problem of homelessness? Well, it's very simple. It's actually very, very simple. You have damaged the underlying factors. You've worked against the underlying factors that facilitate and incentivize and encourage people to want to be married with children in a home, in a family. And so what do you get? Not just in the abstract, unmarried, childless people, but even homeless people. Because what? Because they do the drugs. In part because you helped them. You facilitated that. They were on welfare and they felt terrible living in public housing. And maybe they worked for a while. They work every now and then, off and on. But it's not enough. And so they turn to drugs or they turn to other addictions. And then they decide, you know what? I'm just miserable. I don't like this job. It's not paying. It's not worth it. All of this what? All of this garbage. And so then they feel like society is trash because their private life is trash. And so then what? They trash the public. Just like an artist might for their muse, you know, say an artist fell in love with a young woman and then said, I want to paint you. I want to sculpt you. Will you be my muse? Will you pose for me while I paint you, while I sculpt your form? You look like Aphrodite to me. I want to paint Aphrodite, but I want to use you as my reference for what Aphrodite must have looked like. The artist who is using as his muse the beautiful young lady, maybe in hopes that, okay, I'll win you over, I'll charm you over the course of you being my reference, that artist is going to paint a very lovely picture, a very flattering picture of the beautiful young woman. He's going to sculpt a very flattering form as he looks at that beautiful young woman. But then let's suppose that another artist has an object of wrath as his muse, not an object of adoration and love and affection and adoration, but 
an object of contempt and disgust. I hate you. I hate what you do. I despise you. Ooh, I want the whole world to see how ugly and awful you really are. He's probably not asking somebody to sit. He's probably not asking for them to pose. He's probably not trying to persuade them because he doesn't want to be right next to them. He doesn't want to be near them, but he stands a ways off and distances himself. And he paints a gruesome, grotesque, ugly, hateful, dark picture. He sculpts something truly hideous. Because why? Because he wants everybody to see how horrible, awful, ugly, hideous this object of wrath is. That's what it's like when you have a growing homelessness problem. You have people not just making graffiti on otherwise attractive, clean buildings, but literally trashing the streets. Why? Because that's how they feel. That's how they feel about the public. That's how they feel about society. And what led to that? What has been messaged? What's been communicated as far as what we will reward and what we will disincentivize? That too is the economy. And it's not just, I realize, it's not just people who are on drugs or on alcohol who end up homeless. It's not just people who are mentally ill either though. It is also people who are not mentally well. They're not emotionally healthy. They're not spiritually healthy in part because their response to very trying circumstances was dysfunctional. And we've silenced, we've muted the voices of those who would have said, here, here's what you're missing. Here's how to make sense of this. Here's what to do instead. We've suppressed those voices so that the progressive march can continue, can proceed through the land. And so, yeah, the economy is going great for the people who keep on selling it, like the realtor trying to sell you these tiny homes. Yeah, the economy is doing great for that guy. You get moved into one of those tiny homes. and Maybe you find it charming for a while, but then is the economy really doing so great for you if that's all you can afford? And that's one of the buzzwords he used. It's affordable, which is to say, it's not what you would buy if you had more money. If you <laughs> could afford a bigger house, a nicer house with a little more space, uh, that's what you would do. Of course, of course, it's going to be an expensive thing. There's a cost associated with letting people come into the country and spread out all over the country without any jobs lined up, without any homes lined up, without any transportation. There's going to be a cost for all of that. And that's before the government steps in and starts just giving money to those people, just starts housing them, just starts feeding them. There's a cost before any of that. So also, there's a cost to homelessness. For instance, a homeless encampment caught fire in LA and so badly damaged the main thoroughfare through Los Angeles that it's going to take months for them to repair. Everybody's going to have to find a different route to work or to take their kids to school or to go visit their friends and family on the other side of town or even just to get out of town. There's a high, high cost. And that's what's led to this. We need to clean up at least near the highways. And what's interesting about that, what's so fascinating about that is what does everybody have in common, presumably? The rich, the poor, the well-connected politically, and also those who have no political connections at all. They all want to be able to use the highway system. And so everybody will be upset. Everybody is upset with Newsom and the Democrats 
if something that everybody's been using, everybody's been relying on is affected, then you get everybody's attention. Then you get Newsom's attention and you get the Democrats' attention. But you know who's not being affected for the worse by the homelessness problem based on where they're not going to be doing the cleanup. Or I should say, you know where Newsom's and the Democrats in California's constituents are not being negatively affected in such a way that they would stop voting Democrat based on where they're not going to be cleaning up the homeless encampments. They changed the messaging up there, perhaps. And I've heard Newsom debate with the Republican challenger in the last election for governor of California. I heard the debate and his answer for everything was just, oh, that was the Republicans. The Republicans wouldn't let us do everything that we wanted to do. They wouldn't give us enough money to do what we wanted to do. We wanted to do this and we spent this much money and we spent this much money and we spent this much money. And the Republican, meanwhile, is like, yeah, and what do we have to show for it? Things have gotten worse instead of better. If the problem was we haven't thrown enough money at it, then presumably this problem would have gotten better with the more money you've thrown at it. And your answer for everything is just throw more money at it. Why? Because they don't actually understand, many of them, how the economy works. They're too stubborn to listen to those who do understand how the economy works. Or they don't have the morals. They don't have the fear of God before their eyes to care actually what the economic effect is of their policies. All they really care about is their own economic reality. And as long as it's good for them, as long as this is good for their business, which in the case of Newsom, his business is being governor, as long as it's good for the business of his donors who wine and dine him, well then, this is fine. This is going in the right direction. What's wrong with the rest of you that you feel like the economy is not doing well? It's going great, right? Look at all my new cars. Look at my new house. My not tiny home, I guarantee you, Gavin Newsom does not live in a tiny home. Of course, this is the economy too. And for another story, what is also the economy? Joseph McKinnon over at theblaze.com published a piece November 29th. Damning study suggests pandemic lockdowns accelerated significant memory and cognitive decline in seniors. Dr. Ann Corbett of the University of Exeter Medical School and her team examined neuropsychology data from 3,142 individuals, all 50 years of age or over, who had been participating in a multi-decade dementia study in Britain. The researchers compared data on this cohort collected before the pandemic, early in the pandemic, then once more toward the tail end of the pandemic. The researchers observed, quote, significant worsening of executive function and working memory in the first year of the pandemic across the whole cohort, the average age of which was 67 and a half. Working memory continued to worsen across the whole cohort. In the second year of the pandemic, by the time restrictions had ultimately been eased, the damage had been done. According to the study, cognitive decline was significantly associated with reduced exercise and increased drinking across the whole cohort. Depression, another driving factor of cognitive decline, was notable amongst those who contracted COVID-19. Loneliness, proved especially detrimental to those with mild cognitive impairment. Quote, people aged 50 years and older in the UK had accelerated decline in executive function and working memory during the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic, during which the UK was subjected to three societal lockdowns for a total period of six months, said the study, published in the Lancet journal Healthy Longevity. The British government, which funded this study via the National Institute for Health and Care Research, not only limited the number of times citizens could exercise outside during the pandemic, but shuttered gyms, golf courses, sports courts, swimming pools, and indoor sport facilities. 
quote, the scale of change is also of note with all groups, the whole cohort and the individual subgroups showing more than a 50% greater decline in working memory and executive function and many effect sizes reaching a clinically significant threshold of greater than 0.3, end quote, said the researchers. The researchers further stressed that, quote, these factors map closely to the population-wide changes in health and lifestyle seen during and after the lockdowns, raising the important question of the effect of the pandemic on cognitive health and risk across populations, end quote. Now, all of this is to say, too, going back to the question of affordable housing, the question of homelessness, the question of what's behind the negative economic outlook that many Americans have, of course, of course, you will also get cognitive decline and mental health problems among the very old, among the very young, pretty much among everybody who had their people, they had their important relationships taken away from them for months on end at a time for even years. And oh, by the way, in case it's not obvious, those relationships being taken away, those were not just being taken away with the lockdowns themselves. Like you are prohibited from going over to see your friend, from going to school to see your friend, going to work to see your friend, going to church to see your friend, going to the gym to see your friend, going to the park to see your friend. It's not just that. It's also how people were able to talk through those things or not. And friendships and family relationships that were very much damaged because one person said, we're all in on the so-called settled science. Just trust the experts. And another one was pleading with them, desperate to convince them that, hey, this is very dangerous. No, don't comply. Don't do what they are telling us all we have to do now. This is so dangerous. And what happened in so many cases? Well, I actually don't want people to die, and you apparently are okay with people dying. So even when the lockdown was lifted, you still have rampant loneliness. You have an incredible amount of alienation. And that's before you even get to the masking. Okay, maybe you're allowed to be in proximity to each other, but you're not going to be allowed to see each other's face. What have we just done? We've just created psychological distance. And for people who are not especially verbal, they've been conditioned by their education and by popular culture and by the mainstream media to be highly emotional and emotivist. You put a mask over everybody's face and then what? They've got nothing to go on. They have no way to express themselves like they used to with facial expressions, and they have no way to actually understand what the other person is saying through facial expressions. And then as a result, so also hand and arm gestures and other body language are decreased because there's depression. And so we're not even using body language to express. Or if you're wearing the mask and you're trying to talk and it's harder to be understood, you keep saying things and people keep not understanding what you're saying. And so you say less. Plus, your airflow is less. And so you're out of breath easier. So you're frustrated and you're confused and you're not thinking as clearly. And so that also, if you are around people, is going to lead to loneliness. It's going to deepen the loneliness and it's going to deepen the cognitive decline associated with depression and substance abuse. And essentially, for a lot of people, what amounted to solitary confinement. Because if they lived in one of these tiny home equivalents in some big city all by themselves, just them and their fur baby. They lived in that tiny home because it was just them. No wife for the men, no husband for the women, no children. So it was just them watching TV, playing video games, reading the papers, 
getting into hobbies, getting less and less well, more and more ill. And I think that's also contributed to the homelessness problem because a lot of people became just totally and utterly disillusioned with society, with the people in their circles. They were amazed to find how weak the ties were that bound them. This too is the economy. For our last story though, and then we'll wrap up because I got to run. I got to get to work. Speaking of work, Amanda Prestigiacomo over at the Daily Wire posted a piece, published a bit of reporting. November 29th, dozens of NYC seniors evicted from nursing home turned into migrant shelter. NYC here being New York City, of course. Dozens of seniors in New York, including a 94-year-old Army veteran named Frank Tamaro, were evicted from their senior center, which was then converted into a migrant shelter. City officials have estimated that tens of thousands of migrants have entered the city since last spring, which is costing around $5 million per day. Mayor Eric Adams, who previously boasted about NYC being a sanctuary for migrants, has more recently complained about the influx of migrants. Tamaro told Fox News that he had lived in the center for five years and intended to spend the rest of his days there until he and the other members were notified that they were being kicked out. Terrible. After he was evicted, Tamaro's family found out that the center was turned into a migrant shelter. Quote, I do get upset when I see them handing out all this money and all these things, and I'm paying taxes and getting kicked out, Tamaro said. Quote, I've never got anything from the city or the state, end quote. The veteran's daughter, with whom he now lives, echoed the same sentiment. Quote, I don't understand it at all. It's not fair to anybody. These migrants, they're getting everything. They're getting everything, and I, can, I can't get nothing for tomorrow. It angers me. Barbara Annunziata said, quote, I can't even get him an aid, she continued, noting that her father's insurance rejected long-term requests for care. Quote, I only could get him an aid for 30 days, and then they cancel it. So what? He has to pay for it then? End quote. See, this too is the economy. When the government says you have to have insurance, you have to pay into Social Security, you have to pay into Medicaid, you have to pay your federal taxes and your state taxes and your local taxes, you have to pay all of these things because why? Because what you'll get in return is when you're old, we will help to make sure that you are able to live. We'll help to support you. And so a lot of people for generations said, I don't need to, like previous centuries and millennia of human beings concluded, I don't need to get married. I don't need to have children to take care of me in my old age. You know, that was a primary concern for widows. If a widow, particularly a young widow, had no children, her husband had passed on, leaving her no children. That was a really big concern because as she got older, who was going to take care of her? Who was going to provide for her? Who was going to help her? As she got weaker and more tired and less able to live on her own, if she got sick, who was going to provide for her? Well, for decades, for generations, Democrats in particular told generations of Americans, if you get pregnant and there's no father in the picture, we'll provide. This was LBJ's Great Society program. Not so great, actually. It incentivized the making of bastards. It incentivized women having children outside of marriage and not being particularly worried about how those children would be raised, whether a father would be in the picture. Traditionally, again, for centuries and for millennia, a woman would want to get married either before doing the things that lead to pregnancy or immediately after finding out that she was pregnant. Why? Because that child is going to need a father. 
to provide, to protect, to serve as an example, to instruct, yes, to love, yes, but especially to love in the form of making sure we have shelter and food and clothing, and we need somebody who's going to fight off the predators. The empty promises of the statists that they could provide everything for very little cost or no cost at all to you, those empty promises sooner or later, and it seems like they are now, rather sooner, they were going to prove hollow. They were going to prove to be vain and not entirely genuine and not, even for the best of intentions, good, because it's not about just having good intentions. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's not about just having good intentions. If you really have good intentions, you're going to listen when the conservative who understands how the economy works is like, yeah, no, you should get married. You should have kids. You should save your money. You should want lower taxes. You should want less regulation. You should work and earn and save and buy things with cash instead of borrowing. And you should not be dependent on the government to give you permission for everything or to prohibit whatever they want to prohibit to provide everything for you because what if the government stops having the capacity and the politicians are too terrified to admit that they don't have it anymore? And in fact, they never really had it. They were only taking from the economy what they then gave to somebody else. It was you for a time, perhaps, possibly receiving, or it was you expecting that in your hour of need you would receive. And now the people who have profited so handsomely for all this time, they're manning the lifeboats by mass importation of immigrants. Because what? Because a lot of Americans stopped getting married and having kids. And by the end of this century, we're going to contract, our population is going to contract by one third. And in the meantime, between now and then, we're going to fly apart more and more. The bolts get rusted together and everybody gets too afraid to take those bolts loose to replace something, to clean it up, to check it out because the engine's not running like it should. Everybody's too afraid of working those bolts to open it up because the bolts might just break and they probably will at this point because it's been so long since anybody has either tightened or loosened those bolts. And so now we just wait until the engine well and truly fails and you've got to either break those bolts or replace the whole thing or just have it be a lawn ornament wherever you can tow it to. That's where we're at. That too is the economy. All of that is the economy. Going back to Second Samuel chapter 19, and we'll finish with this. We'll close with bringing it full circle. Joab rebukes David. Why? Because David is only thinking about his grief for his son Absalom, and he's forgotten that he's a king, and he's forgotten that a whole lot of men fought and killed and died to protect him from Absalom and the men who were following Absalom. He's completely forgotten all about that. He's so consumed with his own grief, he's not thinking about the thanks that he owes to his servants and the apology, really, in my opinion, that he owes to his servants for having brought this condition about in the first place through his own action and inaction. Joab confronts David. David gets it together enough to at least go out there, take his seat at the gate. And then David returns to Jerusalem. And then David pardons his enemies. But in the mix with the pardoning of the enemies is, one, an inclination to kill some who sided with Absalom rather than give them mercy. David chooses mercy. And I think that's for the best. I do. But I don't think that's foolishness on his part. I think that's very good. 
Micah 6.8, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. It's good that David shows mercy here. The doing justice piece is addressed with Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth says he's been slandered and it's a lie what David heard about Mephibosheth. David doesn't know one way or the other. The most just thing he can do is to say, you and Ziba both split the property. So there he is doing justice. Then you get Barzillai, the Gileadite, an aged man, very wealthy, who helped David and his household in their hour of need. David wants to reward Barzillai. He wants to honor him, and he wants Barzillai to be close by. Never mind that Barzillai is an octogenarian. He's a good man. He's a faithful, trustworthy man. David values Barzillai. But then what? Barzillai says, I am old. No, that doesn't have much appeal to me. Your delicious foods and delicious drinks would be a waste on me because I can't taste things like I used to. It's better if you would take this young man here. We don't know why Barzillai picks this young man, but he picks this young man to go and get this opportunity of a lifetime to go back to Jerusalem with David. And that too is the economy, but it's contingent on character because like politics is the business of making decisions together, the economy is just the business of producing things and consuming things together. What are we producing? For whom? How? Who's going to consume those things? That's the economy. And politics and economics are two sides of the same coin. If there was no economy, then presumably there would be no reason for politics. Because what are we making decisions about together in politics? We're making decisions about the welfare of the city, for instance, the state, for instance, the nation, for instance. But in relation to what? What's our interest? Well, we live here. Ah, so when we live here, presumably we have property here, or at least we have our own lives here. We have our own families here. And so these decisions, while they may be all of our decision to make, they're also our interests. In its welfare, you will find your welfare. But then that is to say, if the city's not doing so hot, and you're not either, probably. But for the grace of God and God's divine intervention, you are going to suffer as the city suffers, as the nation suffers. And that's what we find. And it may not be your fault, but it is your responsibility. And that's what separates the boys from the men. If you can recognize this is not my fault, but it is my responsibility, and I need to do something here. I need to be responsive. I need to deal with it. Friends, we need to deal with this. And if you won't hear of it because you're very comfortable, well, then I say, sooner or later, your comfort will dissolve. It will evaporate. Your comfort, like the wise woman in Proverbs, who sends her maidservants out around the city to call to the simple, come here, turn in, enjoy a meal at my table, drink my mixed wine, let me teach you the ways of wisdom. She understands something that a lot of our very comfortable and established people in America today either have never understood or they've forgotten if they once did understand it. She understands that the next iteration of securing her place is you build on the fact that you hewed these pillars, seven pillars to your house. You build on the fact that you have a house, you have a table, you have animals to slaughter, you have wine to mix, you have maidservants. You build on all of that and you secure it by calling to the simple and saying, let me teach you wisdom. Let me teach you justice. Let me teach you how to work with your own hands and earn your own 
of these things and enjoy these things. See how good and delicious they are when you earn them by the sweat of your brow. See how excellent they are when you don't steal them. Don't listen to the woman folly. Her house goes down to Sheol. It goes down to the grave. And the Democrats, my friends, have been the woman folly, saying that bread eaten in secret is most delicious. That's the best bread. The bread that you really didn't earn, it was somebody else who earned that. It was redistributed to you. Yeah. The woman folly calls to the simple too. And she might be offering a meal too, but it's not all the same. And it's not just a perception thing. Morally, before God, it is not the same. And that's what also separates not the boys from the men necessarily, because boys can know that as well or better in many cases than men can. And too often forget, let it not be said of us, that we forgot. But that's what separates the righteous from the wicked. That's what separates the truly wise from the foolish and from those who are wise in their own eyes. Whether you remember that in God's economy, those who do what is good are to be rewarded. Those who do what is evil are to be punished. Not just grace, grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. No, he has shown you, O man, what is good. To do justice, what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, fear God and keep his commandments, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. But that is all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.